You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 38, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me again as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. My guest today is Dr. Corey S. Fawcett, a retired surgeon and award-winning author with numerous books that are bestsellers on Amazon, a part of the Doctor's Guide 2 series, where he explores the financial aspects of being a physician. But today we're going to also focus specifically not only on eliminating debt, but also the causes of burnout. Namely, we're going to focus on the Medscape survey of physician burnout, depression, and suicide. There we're going to discuss the findings of the survey and then what we think was left out of the answers that are probably as significant, if not more significant, than the actual job itself that is causing problems with burnout in physicians. As always, you can find the show notes at theparadox.com slash 038. There you'll find the links that we reference in the show, ways to find Dr. Fawcett on Twitter, his homepage, ways to sign up for his weekly free email list, and books that he's written. Whether you're a physician or not, I think you'll find a lot of insight in this episode, not only on physician burnout, the causes, who's facing the burnout more than others, but also on the effect that the finances have on your life, both personally and professionally. So if you're an American, which most of my listeners are, but not everyone, you probably carry debt or have carried debt recently, and so there are a lot of practical solutions to solving this problem and release a lot of big stress out of your life, which Dr. Fawcett goes over in this episode. So without further ado, Dr. Corius Fawcett, Eliminating Debt, and the Medscape Physician Survey on Burnout, Depression, and Suicide. Enjoy. Well, hello, folks. This is Dr. Larson again. I'm here with Dr. Corius Fawcett. He's a, I guess, now retired general surgeon who is practiced in Oregon for a number of years, got his MD from Oregon Health Science and Health and Science University, did his residency at the Kern Medical Center. Uh, he's become somewhat well-known, I guess you'd say, uh, as the author of three award-winning Amazon best-selling books, the Doctor's Guide series. So there's the Doctor's Guide to Starting Your Practice Right, Doctor's Guide to Eliminating Debt, and the Doctor's Guide to Smart Career Alternatives and Retirement. He spent 23 years in private practice, and he's now been devoting himself to his other businesses, which are writing and coaching and financial advice for physicians and helping them attain attained debt-free status and financial independence. And I guess, Dr. Foster, you came on my radar uh, probably with a tweet, which seems to be how I find lots of people nowadays, but where you're discussing physician burnout and specifically relating to things that maybe weren't in the survey, which we'll get to in a little bit. But first, I'd like to thank you so much from your motorhome in Arizona. Well, thanks for having me. And and this is a, uh, when I've talked to Dr. Darlene a few week, a few episodes ago, I really hadn't initially intended my show to include finances. But as I think you mentioned in your, your paper that it will be referenced in the show notes page, uh, you know, finances are very important and they are, they're part of our life and they're, they're, they can cause enormous stress or I guess relief uh, depending what your state of finances are. And so it's something that probably is worth discussing when talking about just healthcare in general. Yeah, and it's kind of a new uh, notion. Uh, several years ago, I was at a meeting where they were discussing uh, stress. This was around 2001, 2002, right in there. And they asked everybody in the room, what do you do to help relieve stress? And they went around one at a time and asked each doctor. When it came to me, I said, well, I paid off all my debt and that relieved a tremendous amount of stress for me. <laughs> and when I said that, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Everyone was just silent. They're kind of staring at me like, you did what? <laughs> huh? I, and one of the guys was so upset about this, and I'm not sure why, but at the break, he came up to me and says, well, if you're so blankety-bank rich, why don't you just retire? <laughs> and it was like, 
what? I, I didn't see anything about being rich. I said I paid off my debt. So this whole notion of, of getting your finances in good order and becoming debt free is a fairly new thing in the medical community. And in, in, in the early 2000s, it was kind of shocking to tell people, oh, yeah, I paid off all my debt. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's kind of coming you, around. I think you'd say, and that, would, that goes for the just in, in popular, just in the general population too, right? You see Dave Ramsey and um, coaching people to you know, scream into the telephone, you know, when they call into a show saying I'm debt free. And so it's, it's natural that it would extend to professionals as well in the market. And so I think today's discussion, we're going to talk about your piece addressing the Medscape survey. And then we're going to talk about just financial independence and I guess, uh, especially related to debt with physicians. And, and I think most of the things in your book really relate to people who aren't even professionals too. I think the principles are fundamentally the same. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what happened that created the book is the principles were fundamentally the same, but the high income people weren't getting it because they didn't realize it's a principle thing. And when someone, you mentioned Dave Ramsey, when someone would come on and do their primal scream about having paid off $60,000 in debt, the physician didn't get it. Well, what's the big deal? I mean, so what? I mean, I have $660,000 of debt. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was like, they didn't get it, that, that the principle is the same. And just because you have an extra zero on the end doesn't change anything. And so that's what brought on the book was to, to, to take that message to a higher level income people so that they get the message themselves. And it doesn't right. just kind of pass by as, well, that doesn't apply to me. Right. And to be clear, when we say principle, we're saying PLE, not PAL, right? Although they do are, they are both involved yes. in this yeah, yeah, financially. Yeah. Right? They kind of get confused. <laughs> Bad so, about the English language. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about briefly about the Medscape 2019 National Physician Burnout, Depression, Suicide Survey. And as any listener can guess, this is going to be about sort of depressing things when it comes to physicians. And these are people who are taking care of you uh, or you're involved in the profession and you're obviously the one dealing with this. The definition of burnout is fairly ambiguous. I guess it's just a feeling of stress or an inability to um, have joy in your job. And I, I think it's just sort of a self-defined thing. So people ask you, are you burnt out? And you either say yes or no. Uh, some of the other things are more, uh, I guess, more fairly established as far as whether you're clinically or colloquially depressed. Like, do you feel sad? Yes. Then you say, I'm feeling depressed today versus someone who has a clinical uh, case of depression. But uh, when they did the survey, they found that 44% of physicians were self-described as burned out, which is staggering. Um, and you can imagine if you're burned out, you're, you're clearly not getting along in life as well as with your personal relationships, how you deal with your patients um, and, uh, you know, at work. And so, and with your colleagues and 11% were colloquially depressed. So people who describe themselves as depressed where 4% were clinically depressed, or I imagine getting treatment of some sort. So that's a, a large amount of the physician ranks, and this is 2019. Um, and then when you look at specialty, uh, I think it was a little surprising, for me at least, I found that the highest spe the highest rank specialty as far as being burnt out uh, were the urologists at over over half of them at 54%. And even the lowest, the, the ones who did great are the pediatricians at 32%. So I mean, still a third of pediatricians felt burnt out. Uh, and they're the ones dealing with fun kids. There's been a little change from year over year. I think last year it was the critical care that people in the ICUs were a little bit higher. And I think it matters just who happened to answer the, the survey that year. I think that's entirely you possible, know, it, right? Yeah. It's hard to imagine that things have changed significantly within a field from one year to the next. And, and, you know, it's maybe a difference of five percentage points. So there's right, a future, the top people kind of shift around a little bit and the bottom people shift around a little bit, but the top people don't move to the bottom and vice versa. You know, I think it, who, who takes the bottom and who takes the top kind of changes every year. But, you know, urology is at the top now. Every year they've kind of been up near there. Yeah, right. And, know, and it's so. generally been spe surgical specialties that are at the top. Uh, the ER docs, of, not surprisingly, also. I was a little surprised neurologists are were up there at the top too. Uh, men tend to be less burnt out than women at 39 versus 50%. Um, and last year it was 38 versus 48. So that really has, didn't change significantly. And I think, you know, if you look at socially, that's not too surprising that you'd expect the burdens on women, uh, especially professionals is a little greater as there's, there are greater expectations for them 
at home to take care of families and things like that, it, the children. I think that's just a, our I think culture. this has been a society thing for a long time. Yeah. It, it seems to be changing, but doesn't seem to be changing very fast. Right. No, I, no <laughs> question about that. Uh, and so then the, they asked the, the physicians then, you know, what causes the burnout? And this is what we'll talk about uh, your, your insight as well. But when the self-described causes were not surprisingly, almost 60% were saying it was from bureaucratic tasks, uh, paperwork, charting things. 34% was just long hours at work. And that'll bear out as later, uh, some of the later questions. 32% was the electronic health record, which we've spoken about in this show a number of times. 30% was a lack of respect, which I think, I think most people who are not physicians find that surprising. I think they think physicians walk around generally respected. And I don't think physicians just feel that way most of the time. And I don't know if it's, my guess is it's an, more with administrators than patients. Yeah. I think as we've as we've uh, moved to a more employed position, and we've moved to a place where we're no longer be called physicians, we're called practitioners, and we're just lumped in with everybody else that they're calling a practitioner. Uh, I think we get the feeling that our 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 status, if you want to call it that, has been dropping. Yeah. I, I certainly, I yeah, you're right. Sure. The respect and, and the recognition of the training and the, and the, the knowledge that you bring. Right. I mean, no one ever gets on the plane to wonder who's their provider is. <laughs> they, no. They want to, they want to know who is. Is there the a doctor is. in the house? Nobody yells out, is there a provider in the house? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then not surprisingly, when it comes to, to burnout, the question about hours worked. So those who work the least amount of hours tend to be the least burnt out. And those who work the most hours are the most burnt out. So if you work 71 or more hours a week, it's about 59% or 57%, I think. And then if you work 31 to 40 hours a week, which is the lowest category for physicians, it was a 36% burnout rate. And then specialties that tend to work more hours tend to be more burnout, like surgeons. Um, that's kind of true. But it's, it was an interesting thing was emergency medicine. Yes, uh, I was going to mention that. Yeah, was, was one of the ones that is on the high on the burnout list. And yet, it was the lowest on the uh, overworked list. The the number, the specialty, if it, what they tracked was if you work more than 51 hours a week, only 13% of emergency medicine doctors said that they did that. Yeah. So they're working the least amount of all of us, and yet they were near the top of the burnout list. So it's not just any one factor such as how many hours you work. Clearly. I mean, and I would say from my anecdotal uh, survey of colleagues I have who are emergency physicians, I feel like I, they're looking to escape the emergency room after about 10 to 15 year career. Uh, they're looking to get either yeah. doing anesthesia work or sedation, administrative, because I think it's the type of work they do is, is very challenging. And those, all those bureaucratic tasks and things that other physicians find annoying, I think they have it sort of two or threefold in the, in the ERs. They're sort of creatures of the the system the the health organizations yeah i think they get the most trauma too they they are traumatized the most by what happens sure uh they have so many uh, and most physicians don't deal with life and death mm -hmm. but the er doc often does that more than once a shift uh and, and i think part of the problem that the er faces is the type of work they do is incredibly intense high amount of adrenaline very urgent, and I think maybe post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome might be more into play with that type of, of work environment, uh, where you're under a lot of stress when you're doing your job. Even though you don't do it as many hours, I think the stress level, like from a pediatrician compared to what happens in the ER, is a huge difference, or a pathologist compared to what happens in the ER. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're totally right there. <laughs> right, and and I think it's important to point out, even if there's in a place without lots of trauma, like you know car accidents or the the emergency rooms are function for the most part is a, a gateway between the the community and those those who are on the outside of sort of regular society. The people that the types of people that most people don't ever interact with, the people who live under bridges, right, the ones with severe significant psychiatric problems. And so they're stressed in trying to, you know, place these people and to, to deal with their their family dynamics. And there's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things that they deal with that are 
sort of screened before they get to someone like me where I'm in the operating room, right? I mean, I've, I, most of those things have sort of worked themselves out, but they're the ones who are dealing with it on the front lines. I, yeah, I think they get a really t- tough job that's getting tougher every year as more and more primary care doctors, for instance, rely on hospitalists to take care of hospitalized patients. More and more primary care doctors, if you call their line, it says, hey, you know, we're busy today. If you really need help, go to the emergency room. Right. (laughs) You know, and that's happening in a greater and greater amount. Uh, It used to be the primary care doctor uh, who had to take care of you when you're in the hospital would do whatever they could to keep you out of the hospital so they didn't have to go to the hospital to take care of you. Now they can just say, oh, just go to the hospital. Yeah, right. Your doctor and the hospitalist will take care of you and take care of things. And it doesn't mess up my office today. So yeah, and you, you don't have an open trend. slot. Yeah, right. I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, when you look at the burnout by the work setting, they're pretty similar. I mean, if people in solo practice, 41%, those in organizationals, organizational settings are 49%. So, you know, if you're part of a larger organization, it tends to be a little bit higher, probably just because of the bureaucratic and probably the the less respect function from the administrators and the I man. I thought that was you know? super interesting that the worst burnout place to be is in a big healthcare organization and the best place to be was in solo practice and today everybody wants to leave their solo practice and work for a big healthcare organization right and yet that's backwards if if you wanted to improve your burnout position uh it's a it's a backwards move and yet that's the move we're making as a group and i think that feeds into what we'll talk about in a little bit i i think those are related um, a, two more, a couple more points. One is when it looks, when they look at ways physicians cope with, uh, the burnout, they exercise, they talk to friends, they sleep, they eat bad food, uh, they smoke, they drink. And when you look at the difference between men and women, they're not surprisingly, they attack the, the stress differently. Men tend to exercise more. Women tend to, to, uh, talk more, which I don't think would surprise anybody. And, um, Men tend to drink and smoke and women tend to sleep and eat. So I think those are just biological differences, I suppose, or maybe cultural, but um, I guess it's there's nothing surprising about that. They're different. By sex, what do, you, what do you choose as your coping mechanism? Uh, we, we gravitate to different things. Yeah. And the, the thing that bugged me the most about those coping mechanisms was that 29% of them was turning to some kind of a drug. Yeah, right. 29, almost a third of us will turn to some sort of a drug to alleviate the stress or pain of burnout. Right. I mean, most of them and, and are alcohol and, and smoking, throw, right? But yeah. If you throw junk food and yeah. adrenaline in there with your exercise, then maybe it's <laughs> it's About a really high number. Uh, but those are kind of a different topic. And and one and thing we've talked about a couple times in the show is, you know, when you look at the amount of the percentage of people who have thought about suicide, not actually attempted, but thought it's 14%. One in I, I find I find it so hard to believe. I mean, I, maybe I'm maybe I'm blessed that I have not actually ever come anywhere near this uh, to that point. But boy, it's 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 kind of scary to think that you're going to be in an institution or <laughs> go someplace to get healed, where it's a seventh of the people there who have, you know, who have well, I guess half are burnt out, so a fourteenth or whatever have thought about hurting themselves. I I, I don't know. I guess I can't have, wrap my brain around that one really. That's a, uh, a pretty high, and, and you know, that's been coming to the forefront lately uh, as uh, physician suicide uh, has been talked about more. It was kind of something no one mentioned uh, before and lately has been coming to the forefront. I think Pam Weibel kind of instigated right. that to, to, to let's talk about this problem because it's a big problem. And then when we look at this and find out that one out of the seven of these people considered suicide, I mean, that's a big number. I, I, that shocked me that it, that it was that high. Uh, and, and I've had some friends uh, in medicine that had committed suicide and or died by suicide or whatever is the best way yeah. to say that. Um, but one in seven, that that tells me we got a big problem. Yeah. I, I, again, it's hard to get a, 
to get, to get a handle that. I talked to Dr. Weibel in a few episodes ago about it. And I think it's, you know, she has her ideas of what causes it. I think they're all, it, like anything, this multifactorial, just like with burnout, right? There are multiple causes of, of what gets people to that point or all of them together sort of, right? You get that final straw that uh, breaks the back of the camel. But, and then the severity of the, the burnout was pretty significant too. I think when they asked, and I think, I'm not sure why they use a seven point scale, but they chose seven point scale, you know, seven is the worst. I think almost half of said that it was between a four and five out of seven, the, the severity of the burnout. So pretty Pretty bad. And the number, the number in there that really got me was that ten percent of them rated it so high, rated at the top. Yeah, it was so severe that they're thinking about leaving medicine. Ten percent of the doctors are thinking about quitting because they're burned out. And what if they and did? They, oh yeah, and ten percent of us just disappeared one day. You know, when we had the government shutdown, the um, the TSA agents at the airport. They mentioned that it's totally disrupting everything because 10% of them are calling in sick. Right. Well, what if 10% of the doctors just suddenly didn't come to work? Not just called in sick, but they were done. Yeah. What a profound impact that would have on our country to lose 10% of our physicians. Absolutely. And, you know, you look at, and then another insight in this this survey, which should be the last one I'll mention here, is that 20% of the, the physicians chose not to disclose or seek any help because they didn't want they didn't want to be disclosed that that they were seeking help because they thought that affected their career, their um, ability to practice. And you I mean, know, that's a huge tragedy for us. That yeah, that we can't ask for help. I mean, if you think about HIPAA, HIPAA was set up to protect people's healthcare records. And it most impacts doctors. Doctors are the ones who are supposed to be taking care of the healthcare records and following HIPAA. But we are excluded from it. Right. Yeah. How come it is that when we, uh, our own healthcare doesn't get HIPAA protection, if the medical board wants to know about our healthcare, we have to tell them there's, there's no HIPAA just because they want to, not because they need to, just because they want to, they can get your health records. And it just seems strange that the people who are supposed to be leading and helping with HIPAA are the are exempt from HIPAA itself, uh, and we don't have our own medical records protected. And so people are afraid to seek health care because if you seek mental health care, it could cost you your job. Yeah, and one of the earlier episodes I did was Dr. Stacia Dearman. Uh, the point she makes is with malpractice is that generally with malpractice cases, I don't know how many people are familiar with this who aren't physicians, is that you really can't disclose that you're being sued to, to many of your colleagues. Because as soon as you do, anytime there's a form looking for credentialing, one of the first questions in there is, has this person uh, been involved in a malpractice suit? Do you know of that? And and so you're, you're encouraged, or di- I should say discouraged, from disclosing that to anybody, and which means you can't talk to people about it and see what their experiences were like and find out how common it is. And so you can definitely feel isolated and as if you're the only one who's going through, you know, this, this, uh, this event and, and, and that, that issue probably is leads to not depression. innocent and, until proven guilty. Correct. Right. Because you have to fill out the form saying, have you ever been accused basically of malpractice? Let's hear about it. Exactly. You know, it's not, it, it, it doesn't limit it to, have you ever been found guilty of malpractice? And is that, you know, on your record? Uh, they want to know if anyone's ever mentioned that they are after you for malpractice, which is, is absolutely ridiculous because anyone can do that. Oh, I'm going to sue him. And you just sue him. But a lot of those just get thrown out. Well, if they're thrown out, then they should just disappear because they weren't for real. Yeah. And yet we have to disclose, disclose that somebody attacked us. And it should be the other way around. If you're found guilty of malpractice, you've settled a case or you went to court and you were found against you well that should be uh, on the record but if somebody just accuses you that doesn't belong there yeah no it's it is a strange thing because um you know when we're when i'm in the credentialing committee i'm a credential for the middle of providers in the hospital system you know i i would say in general we don't care if people have been accused but you still have to disclose it and there's definitely a black eye kind of you know if you got accused of seven even if they're all just they're all thrown out. You start it raises red flags, right? At, at a minimum, and so there's it, oh, it's yeah. tough for the practitioner. I, I remember coming uh, uh, 
up to a committee once and they said, listen, uh, this patient complained about you and this is what the problem was. Okay. <laughs> and they described it to me and I said, that's not my patient. This is this. The, they mistakenly told you that I was their doctor. Uh, they actually belonged to the other surgeon. And when everybody realized that you would have thought that was the end of the meeting, but it wasn't. <laughs> They went on with, okay, yeah, but you have this problem of this. Wait a minute. You're, you're accusing me of a problem and the patient, this, I'm not this patient's doctor. And, and they couldn't get away from the fact that we came to this meeting to accuse me of this problem. Right. And yet they, you would have thought once they realized, oops, we called the wrong doctor because the patient mistakenly said my name instead of the other doctor's name because Sometimes when a patient comes through the emergency room or something, they're confused about who the doctor was. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and it was kind of it was kind of funny that well, wait a minute, this isn't even my patient. <laughs> I've actually not didn't take care of this patient, uh, but it didn't end the problem. Once it was tagged, it was tagged. Well, and and this would probably lead a little to the the whole respect issue, right? I mean that that we as administrators or as a committee we have to. We need our we need our pound of flesh, right? Whether um, and so, yeah, I was still there to get flesh from, and the other doctor wasn't. They should have stopped and said, "Uh oh, you're right." As they looked at the medical record, they realized, "Oh, wait a minute, it is this other doctor." <laughs> they should have just stopped. I'm sorry, Doctor Fawcett, you can go home now. And they should have made an appointment to talk to the other doctor, but they didn't. Yeah, you know, they, they already kept they on had talking to... to me like this was really my problem. They had yeah, to set the patient complained about and you. Stuff. Right. right. It wasn't so, there. As a matter of fact, and, and it was really funny because I pulled out my record. As a matter of fact, when this happened, I was not in the state. I was on vacation <laughs> away at this other place. And the reason that I think the name got confused is because they were trying to see me, but I was gone and this other person was on call. And so this oh, person sure. took care of everything. Uh I wasn't even in the state when it happened. And yet they continued on with the meeting as if I was still the one the, the patient was complaining about. <laughs> oh. So somehow we have to change the system so that only real things go through, not and see, presumed things. And this is the, and this is also the problem with, I, no matter how many, how accurate your record keeping is, it sometimes doesn't matter. Isn't it? It's very strange. You would think that a lot of these things would be, easily i guess resolved but yet we have these these problems well i want to get back to the survey and an interesting thing about the survey i i actually don't have the survey in front of me as far as the actual questions were asked but i presume that some of the questions weren't there or i should say some of the answers and namely what do you think was missing for the questionnaire about what causes burnout and we kind of well, brief, touched on it briefly before. Yeah. The glaring thing that I saw that wasn't shown there was financial stress and debt. And yet today, all over the doctor news is dealing with student debt. I mean, student debt is crippling doctors for years afterwards. And the stress that that puts on us, uh, the amount of extra work, doctors that are moonlighting, taking an extra call to, to help pay for this stuff. He's creating a tremendous amount of stress. And, and I mentioned that when I paid off my debt, it relieved a tremendous amount of stress. And nowhere in this study was debt or finance ever mentioned. Yeah, I found that strange. I mean, also you could have mentioned, uh, you could also add personal issues like, you know, marriage, children, and things like that. I mean, they they certainly all contribute and, and all these things was, contribute to each other. It was, right? F, it was as if they were blaming the job. Yes, right. It's the job's fault uh, that all this burnout is happening. Therefore, let's ask questions about the job. And they left out, well, what about other things that can contribute to burnout in your life? Yeah, we're human Those beings, right? And we have, and to give people an idea, I think it's, I, I'm guessing the average is about two hundred to $250,000 of debt the average uh, medical yes. student finishes their training with. And so that's, that affects a lot of things. One, it affects your career choice. I mean, you may think, oh, I'd love to be a pediatrician or I'd love to be a psychiatrist or, and you're like, eh, they just don't, you know, I'll never get out of debt. I just can't afford to do yeah. that. A lot of right. people make that mistaken 
that's really a mistake in, in, in thinking. You shouldn't, yes. you shouldn't do that. But a lot of people do do that. And, and the $200,000 average, that's kind of a, a misleading number because something like a third of the doctors have no debt. <laughs> right. So that means okay. some people are way more so, <laughs> mathematically. Of the ones who really have debt, the numbers are, are really higher than that. Even though the average is, is 200000 there's a lot of people with a huge debt. And if you went and racked up a six, $700,000 debt and you wanted to take a job uh, as a pediatrician in a small community somewhere and you were going to make $150,000 a year, that's going to be a strong incentive for you to say, you know, maybe I can't continue on with that dream. Maybe I need to do. And then you, you take the wrong job. Well, I should be a neurosurgeon because they make a lot of money and then I can pay right. all this debt. But you hate that job and that's going to contribute a lot to burnout. So this is one of the ways that debt contributes to burnout is if it, if it pushes you to make a decision a bad decision about what you're going to do with your life based on your debt and that decision can lead to worse burnout, then it's a key factor and it's not here. And I, I read your, your story in, in the book and i as far as coming out of debt, it, just the start where you just started the process and I felt mine was fairly similar too. And, and I even think when you listen to Dave Ramsey, you get a little bit of that too, where even paying off small loans, like you have, you'd have maybe five or six different student loans, different Stafford loans or whatever. And you pay off a small one. I, I don't think I, I realized or that, that there was any sort of pressure or that, the, that there was, I guess I didn't think there'd be any relief paying those off. It was sort of just like a mathematical question, but yet when they were paid off, I felt a lot different. I mean, I felt really good and it was, it was not expected. Did you have the same sort of feel that too? Yes. And it happened twice. Um, it happened when, when we first started on our journey to get out of debt, and, and we were a little over half a million dollars in debt. Uh, and when we began that journey, I, I still was a little, eh, is this going to work or not? You know, But when we paid the first debt off, and I realized I just paid that off way in advance, this is going to work. I got super excited. So when the very first one got paid off way early, it's, it just really jazzed me up, and I got to telling everybody about getting out of debt. Okay, <laughs> the next time it happened to me was when I got down. Okay, so I had this three thousand dollars still owed on one student loan that was only at three percent, and I had this big hang up because I had mistakenly thought that oh yeah, those low interest rate loans are are a good thing to keep. Right, and so I got hung up on that whole notion that oh no, we don't want to pay it. We could pay that off in one check and it's gone. It's just $3,000. But I was so hung up on that it's only 3% interest that I kept it and kept it. And my wife kept saying, let's pay it off. Let's pay it off. But she was tired of sending the check every month. <laughs> and that was back when you actually paid things with checks. And right. so finally, I was, oh, all right, let's just pay it off. Okay, so one check, it's done. And I felt an incredible relief. Yeah. You know what? That was the last of my student loans. They're gone. And I, if I would have known I was going to have that kind of relief with that small little payment, $3,000 to pay off this 3% loan check, I would have done that a long time ago. <laughs> I, I had no idea I was going to feel that good for such a small little thing. But there was something psychological about that was my final student loan. It's over. I have paid them all off. It was great. And, <laughs> I, and I felt the same way. I did Again, I didn't know there's... I didn't know there was a burden that I had that was on my shoulders uh, carrying this debt. And then until you pay, start paying things off and you just, you feel kind of lighter in the shoes. It's kind of, a, it's a very strange sort of unexpected it was, relief. It was really cool. The last time I finally sent it, my final payment was my um, house, the final house payment. Uh -huh. And it, it, when you can really say you're debt free, um, that's a completely different place to be. And until you've actually done it, I, I've, I've said this several times to people, you know, I can tell you that it's really good, but until you do it yourself, you're not going to believe how good that was. Yeah. It's a lot like being an intern. I can tell you how bad it is to be an intern, <laughs> but you're not going to get it until you actually are an intern and you see how bad this is. Uh, it, it's not something you can, 
translate well to people and, and, and get them to feel the same thing you felt. Uh, it, it's, it's a relief out of proportion to what you did. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. And, and I think the fact that it's always so unexpected, I think just because it, I never saw it coming. And so there wasn't even any anticipation. And so it just hit me so hard. I'm, I was fighting the student loan one. I don't want to pay it off. I don't want to pay it off. It, it was like, I had no concept at all that I would enjoy this because <laughs> I right. thought I was making a mistake because you just don't pay off those low interest loans. Right. Cause but, it's math, know, that's right? A, it's it's a math problem you know but you know what all doctors are good at math so if it was just a math problem all doctors no doctor would have a problem with debt right (laughs) it's not a math problem ramsey says that over and over it's not a math problem it's a person problem it's a personality problem it's a behavior problem it's not math but we want to make it math because then it's not our fault right so so what would you say the best way to tackle debt is well, I like the snowball method. And and there are people who argue about whether you should do the snowball method or the avalanche method. But frankly, it doesn't make any difference. Because either method, once you get started and you commit, you're going to pay off your debt so much faster than it was going to be paid off. That's really pretty irrelevant between the two. The biggest difference is actually committing to do it. Once you've done that, you've already won the game. Because mm-hmm. now you're going to become debt free, and and the snowball method is just to to list your debts from the littlest one to the biggest one, and then just start with the littlest one and go. And you just put all your effort into just that one. You make the minimum payments and everything else. Put all your effort in that one debt, and poof, it's gone. And you have that feeling that we were both talking about, right? And that you had no idea that feeling was going to come. <laughs> and when that happens, like my first one, when it fell, I got excited about this and I started putting extra effort into it, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and you can calculate out how long it's going to take. And likely after the first one happens and you accelerate things because you get excited about it, you get yeah. done faster than because there will be things you didn't count on, like um, a tax refund will come sure, sure. and you yeah. didn't have that in your snowball plan. And you suddenly throw it into your snowball plan and it just accelerated your debt payoff by three months at the end, you know? So just, just the act of getting started. I had one client who was talking to me about their debt and they said, do you think there's any hope that I can ever pay this off? (laughs) That was, do you think there's any hope I could ever pay this off? And they were more than a million dollars in debt. And they just didn't see how that was ever going to, going to happen. But when we said this one thing, if you stop borrowing money and you just continue to make the normal payments, everything will be paid off in 11 years. Huh, yeah. (laughs) And that's doing the snowball because what would happen when one payment would finally get paid off, you just take that payment and put it on another one. Doing the snowball without adding any more money into it because once the first one finally gets paid off, it starts a snowball by adding that payment to the next one. And then you pay the next one off and you add that payment to the next one and the payments keep getting bigger. If they would just stop borrowing money and just let that atrophy 11 years, you're totally out of debt. Yeah. Because all debts are set up that way. They have a payment plan so that eventually you'll pay it off. So if you just <laughs> right. quit borrowing any more money, uh, I, there's a great quote about that. You know, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Yes. Great. Will <laughs> Rogers, just, right? <laughs> yeah. Just stop borrowing the money. And eventually all the debts are gone. They're designed that way, but we don't do that. What we do is we realize we're in debt. And so it's really easy. What I talk about in the book is people have diabetic neuropathy. <laughs> you become numb to the debt. Yes. So, well, we've got all this debt. It was. It could be very easy for me to say, I'm half a million dollars in debt. Why don't I, you know, I can go ahead and buy that new car. I mean, what's the difference if I'm half a million or half a million and 30 Absolutely, dollars, yeah. You know? I'll just throw another pile, another debt on the pile and it won't make any difference. But the thing is, when you become debt free, now I've got zero debt. So adding that other $30,000 in debt becomes a big deal. Because mm-hmm. once you're out of debt, then you get out of diabetic neuropathy. And doctors have diabetic neuropathy, something terrible. <clears throat> because we start, you start in your first year of college, 
and you borrow some money and you were a little scared and nothing happened. And then <laughs> next year, okay, you borrow some more money, but nothing happened. And then, wow, this is easy. And then you borrow some more money and nothing happens. And then you're in medical school and you say, hey, you know, I'm really getting tired and I need a break. Why don't we go to France? Let's just put a little more money on our student loans and we can take some of that money and go to France for a vacation. We need a break. And you just start throwing it on the pile because nothing happens. The system is set up that we are allowed to keep borrowing money and don't have to pay it back. Eventually, that will catch up with us. But by the time it does, we've become totally numb to what debt is and we have debt about it, neuropathy. And then it is so easy to just throw another debt on. And that's why we think we can never get out of debt. Because if we would just stop borrowing money, everything would just get paid off and that'd be that. But we don't do that. We just keep adding and keep adding and keep adding. I mean, that's clearly a cultural thing too in the United States. But do you think it's partly because, uh, you know, you have someone who leaves high school, they have no debt because they don't know any, they have no assets. They go to college and they may accumulate debt, but they never really had a, they might have a job to pay for some of their college. But for the most part, a lot of these people or kids are, you know, accumulating debt and they're with no, no uh, need to pay it back for quite some time. It's so far in the future, right? And then they start yeah. accumulating real big debt where you talk about medical school where now it's 50 or 60,000 a year to the point where you, and you're all too busy. So you couldn't really even have a job and pay for it. So it's all getting deferred. And then you don't get a, you get a residency job, which pays pretty well. I mean, I think right. I'm guessing now it's about fifty some thousand dollars on the average pay for yeah, residency yeah, position for a first year residency. It's like the average American household income is right. You know, an hourly okay. wage is not so hot, but you know, it's it's not terrible. But again, your your debt at that point, your debt is so far. You know, you're making fifty thousand a year, and you're already at two hundred fifty thousand dollars of debt. There's no way you can pay it off in when you're during your residency, and so. I think people are encouraged to just or discouraged from even starting at that point. Uh, and then, yeah, like you said, you take an extra trip, whatever. Plans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can just keep doing I only got to pay on all that debt. I only got to pay $200 a month. I, I talk to medical students here at, at Michigan State and they're, and they'll, they'll go on these. Oh, I don't know what they're called. I, they're not, they don't call them vacations. They're, they're like study abroad. They look at population health in like Belfast or something. Uh, which I know is not free, and they I'm sure they pay a couple thousand dollars to go travel there and and uh, and for them, it's like, you know, like you said, it's, it's two hundred versus two hundred and four thousand dollars. You know, what's the difference? It, you just become numb to a number that's so large that does that seems unattainable, and nothing you can do about it anyway for a while. So why even think about it? Yeah. And then you come out of school and then you need new cars and you want to buy a house and and pretty soon you've doubled uh, that number. Uh, and, you, and you just don't think anything of it. And that's, I think, contributing a huge amount to burnout because now it comes due. Now you got to pay the piper. All those years deferring it, now you got to pay it back. And now it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you start doing things like, even though you're tired, even though you're overworked, you're taking extra shifts. Oh, I'll take your call. Mm -hmm. uh, or moonlighting. Uh, or doing extra locums on the weekend uh, to cover for somebody nearby uh, when you should have been taking the weekend to kind of recover, get yourself back on your feet again, get some rest. And instead, because you're so far in debt and you've got to produce to make those payments, you take extra work on and you don't get the recovery time. And I think that's a huge factor in people's burnout. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's any question about it. And I, and I think when you're looking at, at a lot of these students, they have no choice but to go to debt to go to medical school. I mean, I think there's, it's not a bad decision in the sense that, you know, if you want to get, you want to attain that level of education, you're, you're going to have to go into debt usually or oftentimes if your parents aren't paying for you. Um, so what do you recommend for a, for someone who's just finishing completed their medical school? They're going to be entering residency. They're going to be having their, they're getting their first salaried position for the most part. Uh, as an intern somewhere, what do you, if you had the access to those, to those kids, what do you, what are you telling them to do and their strategy for the next say 10 years? So well, through residency and then the first couple of years in pr practice after. Well, when you enter residency, you're not going to be making a big income, but you're actually making an income. And so that means people tend to want to spend the money. So 
what I tell people as you start your residency is don't start spending all that money. Use that money to catch up. Do not, and I'm going to re repeat this, do not buy a house when you are a resident. Never, ever, ever. And yet so many residents have this, it's a society thing to, you got to own a house. You're throwing away money if you rent. You got to right. own a house. And yet a resident is deep in debt. They don't make a big income. They've got all this debt they're going to deal with. And yet they want to go farther in debt and buy a house. And I think that is a huge mistake. I think people need to try uh, and make a decision. Are you going to be someone who's going to be doing a loan forgiveness program? You know, for example, let's say you're going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and you know you're going to have eight years of loan deferments during training. Two more years working for somebody uh, in a nonprofit organization and your loans are forgiven. Mm -hmm. What a great program. Yeah. Versus somebody who knows that they want to go back to their hometown and practice pediatrics. They've got a three-year residency and then they're going to go into private practice in that town because very few people work for somebody else in that town and they know they're going to do that. That person knows they're not going to be doing loan forgiveness. Uh, they need to start now thinking about how are they going to pay off these debts and begin that payoff process. Um, but we, we tend to, once we start making an income, it's burning a hole in our pocket and we yeah. start spending it. I know because I did it. Yep. I left residency with almost no debt and I was a half a million dollars in debt just three years later. <laughs> Okay, so I know what that pull is to spend money once you start earning it. Yep. And another big jump will happen when you get your first attending job, and now your income jumps way up. But if you've been used to living on only $50,000 a year income, and your income goes up to $250,000 a year, there is no reason that you need to jump your lifestyle up to the $250,000. If you just jumped it up, 50% increase and went up to 75 or even doubled it and went to a hundred. That still leaves you over a hundred thousand dollars to be paying your debts off with. And within just a few years, your debts are gone. Yeah. There is well, no reason to carry those student loan debts for many, many years. And, and we just got to get in that mode. Uh, most of us want to do it later. When I was a resident, I started saving for my retirement plan. Mm -hmm. And I could not talk other residents into doing that with me. I tried to get them. And, and the most frequent answer was, well, I don't make a whole lot now. I'm not going to put in my retirement plan. I'm going to wait until I'm an attending when I'm making the big bucks. Then I'll put a lot of money in the retirement plan. Well, odds yeah. are when they got to attending, there would be another reason to postpone it a little longer. Well, right now I've got the student loans. I just bought this house. And, you know, we got just had another kid. So we'll wait until a couple more years and then we'll start. And, and, you know, we tend to keep kicking it down the road and we really got to address it. And, and you got to realize you have diabetic neuropathy. One of the other things I talked about in the book was having Alzheimer's debt mentia. Yes. And that is that you don't remember what it was like to be debt free. So it doesn't kick with you. Uh, and, and so you've got to resist what society is telling you to do, which is to keep up with the Joneses. And I tell you what, the Joneses are broke. Those right. are not who you want to keep up with. Um, there's a better plan. And think about your financial future and get things started now to get yourself out of debt, start planning for retirement. It's so much easier to save for retirement when you're young than it is when you're 55 years old and realize you haven't saved anything yet. And now you want to start saving for retirement. Um, the payments you have to make to retire from that age are huge compared to if you'd have started when you were 30. Right. So don't look at that income. You know, one of the things I like to say is, you know, people think doctors are rich, including doctors. <laughs> the other ones anyway. <laughs> I mean, we think we're rich too. Uh, you suddenly start getting all this money and you think you got to spend it. But you don't. You don't have to spend it all. And if you can avoid making some of the big mistakes early on, you'll do really well. If you get started on the right foot, 
that's what my whole first book's about, starting your practice right. How do you get started on the right foot so that you end up where you really want to be, not where your bad decisions take you? I was president of my group for four years. And so I would have uh, some insight into to a number of my partners. We've over 100 physicians in our group. And so it's a very large single specialty group. But, That's a big group. <laughs> well, you know, anesthesia can get pretty big. And especially we've got a couple of big healthcare systems. I think we do over well over 100,000 anesthetics a year. Um so anyway, I, it would it would surprise me how often there were physicians in my group who were living paycheck to paycheck or not or would almost need advances, and especially people later in their career. I mean, I I was stunned people who were getting close to retirement who couldn't miss a paycheck if whatever cash receivables didn't come up come in that one month or whatever you know, uh, or something there'd be a bump in the road. They suddenly would have they it'd be a crisis. I yeah. can only imagine the the stress that puts on you at work, uh, at home. I, I don't. It's just it's a sad thing, and so I would. My it's a tremendous would, stress, yeah. and it's everywhere. It's it's a society problem. Um, we tend to outspend our income and have debt. We don't save. It's just something we do as a society, uh, and, and it hurts all of us. When when I was a resident, um, we had chosen to live on half of our income. I earned an income, my wife earned an income, and we each earned about the same. And we were both really busy. We couldn't get to the bank. This is before we could get a direct deposit. And so my wife's company paid weekly, uh, and we couldn't get to the bank. So here we are, low-income people. We have six of her paychecks pinned on the bulletin board that we need to get to the bank sometime. (laughs) And her boss, who is a very high-paid person, uh, on payday, if he was working at the plant all the way across the county and tomorrow he was going to be at this plant where his check was, he couldn't wait till tomorrow. He had to drive all the way across the county to get that check to get it in the bank. Right. And one day he came to my wife, who was an accountant for the company, and he says, look, I've been going through the books. There is six outstanding <laughs> payroll checks here. That I, I don't, something is wrong. Could you please look into this and see what's going on and make sure there's not some strange thing happening? And there's no way that she was about to tell her high earning guy that, <laughs> well, those are my checks. I just don't need them and I haven't put them in the bank yet. You know, we, we get so caught up in spending it all and spending it now that even at high income earning positions, we keep doing that. And there are so many doctors who live paycheck to paycheck. As a resident making 50000 let's say, you know, $4,000 a month, and you're getting by, you don't understand how somebody could make $25,000 a month and right. not be able to get by and have to live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and yet, it's real easy to get there. You just start spending the money. And start borrowing the money and you start buying a bigger house and a bigger car and bigger vacations. And pretty soon you're living paycheck to paycheck, just like a lot of those other guys. Yeah. And no matter how big the Dr. Jones who's broke, no matter how big the bucket is, you can always put a bigger hole at the bottom, right? Absolutely. You can't outspend I mean, just look at Johnny. Was it? Uh, yeah. Johnny yeah. Depp would yeah. be bankrupt. He's making 50 million a year or whatever it is. And he's spending it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, how, I can't imagine. I'm not going to make that in my entire life, and yet he spends that per year. Yeah, and not and more than he's <laughs> more than that, right? Yeah, and how do you, how do you, how, how number one, how do you justify that? Uh, it, it, it's just it's mind-boggling. But there's really no amount of income you can't outspend. It's a discipline problem, and and you got to realize that I shouldn't spend all of it. Yeah. I think our government has that same problem. Uh, yes, they do. They keep raising the debt ceiling. Oh, we got to borrow more money this year. Can we just please borrow some more money? And they raise the debt. Can you imagine if we could do that? Hey, go to the bank. Hey, can I raise my debt limit? <laughs> That's actually a funny point in your story because I, I, when people, I, for us to get anything done during the week, it can't be during business hours. I've always found it very interesting. Like, yeah, I can't. I might not be able to make it to the bank this week. I might not be able to get my hair cut. Or, you know, go places that are closed at five because we're working out beyond five every day. 
that's a big problem. In fact, when we had this problem, my wife came home and says, my boss isn't after me for the six checks. We got to get him in the bank. <laughs> I had to actually ask permission. Can I leave? I really have to get to the bank today and, and in my residency. And they let me, okay, all right, we'll let you leave. How long do you need to be gone? You know, it was like, they finally gave me a moment that I could run to the bank and put the checks in there. So, so that she felt better about what was happening at work. But that whole problem of not being able to do things during business hours is a tough one. Do you think the, the new changes in the tax laws will have much of effect on, on people carrying debt? For instance, you know, now the standard deduction is greater, the amount of interest you can declare for, uh, for mortgages. And I think student loans, I imagine is, is included in that as well. Do you think there'll be less interest in higher price homes? Or do you think it won't affect much? That doesn't really, that's not really a driving factor. I don't think it's going to be a driving factor. Um, it's going to make their taxes easier because now they don't have to uh, fill out Schedule A uh, for a lot of people. Um, the thing is, is that the and I put that in, in the book on debt, uh, most people think they get a deduction for the house interest, right. but they yeah. don't. Um, because of the standard deduction. And that just increased the number. I think more people are realizing now, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to get my house deduction. And then they go look at their stuff and say, wait a minute, I've never been getting a house deduction. <laughs> <laughs> they always thought they were getting a deduction for their house, but in actuality, they were just taking the standard deduction uh, ever they fill out all the stuff. So the thing that I think is going to hurt the most is charitable giving mm -hmm. because I think, I think there's a lot of people that give to charity because they're going to get a tax write-off. And so the, then their gift is a little bit less painful to give it. And I think when, when the tax write-off becomes such that you're not going to get a tax write-off for that because your standard deduction is so high, I think there will be a, the, a lot of people that don't give to charity now because they're not going to get the deduction. I think that's where we're going to see the biggest hit mm -hmm. uh, by that philosophy. Um, we'll see if that's right. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of donor advised funds that start to happen. And I think there's going to be a lot of higher income people that, give all their deductions one year and then skip a year and then give double the next year right. uh, so they can get the deduction. And I think that's going to hurt charities um, and churches because they kind of count on that as regular income. And this year they're not going to get any from you because uh, you, they gave some extra last year and then they'll double it the next year. And so I think it's going to, those are the people that I think are going to be hurt the worst by the tax changes. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I, and I think all these things are all on the margin, right? So I think you're not going to see dramatic, something dramatic, but it'll probably be an incremental, subtle change, but it'll, it could be significantly affect these. I think it'll take a while before people realize what's happening. That's true. Yeah. To change uh, behavior. Like, you know, like this whole bit you see now in the news about people complaining that they said they're, my taxes are going down, but my refund is less this year. Right. <laughs> well, your taxes have nothing to do with your refund. Your refund means you screwed up and paid the wrong amount. Right, and I know. So you screwed <laughs> up less this year, so you got a smaller refund. Um, you know, that kind of thinking uh, where people look at a problem and don't see what really the problem is. Uh, just like everybody thought they were getting a, a deduction for their home mortgage, but because of the standard deduction, they weren't more of them are waking up to that now when the standard deduction got higher. Um, and, and I think it'll take a while for everyone to, to figure that out. I actually did an article when that stuff came out of me estimating what it would do to my taxes and the new tax plan had my taxes going up. And the reason was, is I don't have kids at home. Right. And the, the, tax breaks were weighted towards people with families and without the family um, it, it hurt. And so, you know, if, if I had continued on with the exact same uh, as the year before uh, I would have paid a higher tax because of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate the discussion. It's been uh, real interesting. I, and it, and as someone 
who went through a trauma. I'm sure you're not aware, but I lost my 14 year old son last summer in a car accident. Oh, so I heard about that on, on one of your podcasts. I'm, I'm sorry for you. Yeah. Thanks. But it, I, and I've emphasized a couple times having some financial security, some reserves built up. It, it removed a lot of the, a lot of the stress that, that could have been part of that situation. I mean, to, to know that you didn't have to work, you didn't have to do certain things. You could just, just recover as a family. Those are things you obviously can't plan for. And so it's important to have those, that's financial security. And, um, I, you know, those... imagine, imagine if that happened, you were deep in debt, living paycheck to paycheck and you, you had no emergency fund and you needed the time off to recover from this event and you couldn't take it. Oh, I, I, I've thought about that. I thought about, and then I've thought about, you know, not might not be that situation, but maybe you're going through, maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe some kid gets, you know, something, there's some expense that comes up that you have no, that something takes you away or you, or you, something happens and you break your leg or what, I mean, there's a million things that could happen, right? Someone, you might have to take in your, your parent who, because the other parent passes away and there maybe they have Alzheimer's, who knows? There are all sorts of scenarios. Yeah. There are all sorts of things that could happen and, and being out of debt provides you that, and having a having some sort of reserve, I mean, it, it made all the difference. It it made a horrible situation, a slightly less horrible, you know, than it could have been. You were able and to so, deal with it. Yeah, we were able to deal with the things we should be dealing with at that time, right? You're not when you're not worrying about money, which is and important. and imagine had you been in this survey, and you couldn't take the time off because of your debt. Yeah. And here you are, you have to work, you need to be having some time off for, to deal with this stuff. And you're burning out at work because you can't deal with the stuff at home. But there were no questions on this survey that had anything to do with the bad things that are happening in your home life that are contributing to the burnout. And yet you're burning out just the same. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any question that that helped. So for you, where could, where could people find more stuff on you? I mean, you've your website, I'll have links to all these things, but why where do people, where's the best people place for people to follow your work? Well, um, my blog's at drcoreysfaucet.com. That's D-R, Corey S. Fawcett. And everything is listed that way. On Facebook, it's Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. Twitter is at Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. LinkedIn, uh, there's lots of places to find me. Uh, you can find my books on Amazon. Uh, it'd be great if you uh, signed up to get my blog once a week. I send out a, a, a letter on Thursday uh, for everybody to something to help you with your medical practice or finances. And every Monday I send out a, uh, a compilation of the best stories I've read this week on the internet uh, to help you out finding things to read that will improve your life. So drcoreysfaucet.com is where to find me. And that's faucet not spelled like the fa- kitchen faucet. Yes. Yeah. If you're old enough, it's spelled like Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> F-A-W-C-E-T-T. I, uh, I'm going to say sadly no relation. That is, right? yeah. Sadly no relation, right? No relation, no. Not that I know of, but there are not a lot of faucets around, so I don't know. Maybe there's some connection in there. It, it may not even be her real name, right? I guess I've never thought about that before. Well, that could be true. Right? Yeah. It was, be an inter- I haven't be looked into that. Yeah, it'd be an interesting name to sort of pick out on your own, but, you know, Tom Cruise is not obviously Tom Cruise, so... All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, as I mentioned, Corey S. Fawcett, thanks so much for being here. You'll see your links will be on the show notes page and as well as some of the episodes I referenced in this and the links to your books at Amazon. And I mean, I've read one of them. I read the Eliminating Debt. I've got the other two at some point. Maybe we'll discuss those in the future because if it's like this one, I'm sure it'll have lots of, at least nothing else, a lot of great Will Rogers things. And I have to mention on page 37, I could tell you were biology uh, you're a biology major, right? In college. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because you have what looks like a diagram explaining finances that looks a lot like a distillery. And I thought it's, <laughs> it looks like his biological sort of, uh, apparatus, which has finances and all these things dripping in and out of things. I thought it was really funny. It's anyway. actually a water cooler. So, you know, but it's still, it's still, it may be, you know, maybe it's a still for some people. Anyway, thank if you so much for Kentucky. That's a still. If you're from uh, San Francisco, that's a water cooler. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much for spending the afternoon with me. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun. I hope we can do it again. Yeah. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. 
If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>